Well, believe it or not, according to the church calendar, we are still in the season of Easter. Granted, it's the, the last Sunday of Easter. Uh, but today's text for the Easter season is a little different than most of the texts that we've been looking at thus far. Most of the texts have been about the resurrection of Jesus, you know, his appearances, or maybe his apostles preaching about the resurrection to uh, a different crowd here or there. But today, we're going to be focusing specifically on the ascension of Jesus. And the reason for that, of course, is because this last Thursday is the day that the church honors that event in the life of Jesus, his ascension back to his father. Now, just to bring you up to speed on uh, the setting around the text that we're going to read from John 17 in just a bit, Jesus has just gotten done basically instructing his disciples about what awaits them in the future. That, I mean, he does promise them that they're going to have some trials and tribulations that will come their way. He does also promise them that the Spirit is coming to accompany them and be their counselor and their comforter. And then he, he ends the previous passage in chapter 16 of John with these famous words. He says, in this world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So with that by way of backdrop, let's now dig into our text in John chapter 17, beginning at verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Let's pause for a word of prayer. Father, I ask that as you've gathered us here now to hear your word, that you would speak powerfully through my very imperfect and feeble lips to those that you have gathered. By your Holy Spirit, take these words and implant them deeply into our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you may have noticed in our reading today, if you were paying attention that there is a word repeated throughout our text over and over and over again. Or at least the, the form of a word. Did you pick it up? The form of the word glory is repeated multiple times. As Jesus lifts up his voice to the Father, he says things like, glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. He says, I glorified you on earth and glorify me in your presence with the glory that I have with you before the world existed. And just for good measure, 
He caps it off saying of his disciples, all mine are yours and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. So, I figure if a text of scripture uses a specific word a bunch of times, it's probably good for us to discuss what that word means. What do you think of when you hear the word glory? Maybe you think of a late 80s movie, a Civil War movie with Matthew Broderick, Morgan Freeman, and a sprightly young Denzel Washington. That does come to mind for me. It's a good movie, pretty good flick. Or maybe, maybe if you're a basketball fan like me and you've just gotten done watching the Last Dance documentary with religious fervor, um, maybe you think of Michael Jordan after winning his sixth NBA championship, his second three-peat in his career. You know, the, the Bulls just dominated the 90s. And you think of, of all the honor and recognition and praise and, and all the lauding that came down on Michael Jordan in, as people recognized his, his greatness that greatness second only to LeBron, Raymond James. If something like that came to your mind, you're actually not that far off from the meaning of the word glory. As Jesus recognizes that he has accomplished all that the Father has sent him to do, he knows that he's going to be leaving soon. He knows that he has, he has lived the sinless life he was sent here to live. He knows that he's going to die the atoning death he was sent here to die. And he knows that the Father by the Spirit is going to raise him to new life. And now he's ready to go home. He wants to ascend back to where he's from. So he asks the Father, that he would lift him up, that he would extol him, that he would honor him with the honor that he had before time began. As he asked for this honor to be his, he ends up listing a number of accomplishments throughout our text that sort of qualify him for this glory that he has over all of heaven and earth, over all of space and time and all created things. And of course, my tendency would be to think that those things he would list would be, you know, the, the amazing miracles he did or, or maybe even just, the, you know, his dethroning of the corrupt religious establishment, establishment in Jerusalem that, that he was sent to sort of overthrow. I mean, he did it successfully. But no, that's not what Jesus focuses on when he talks about his own glory. In fact, what he focuses on throughout the passage is everything he does for others. Everything he does, in fact, for his disciples. And by extension, you and I today. He begins, he says, glorify me, Father, because, because I've won eternal life for my disciples. Listen again to verse 2. You've given me authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you've given me. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. What does Jesus glory in? That he's able to take a bunch of sinners, a bunch of ne'er-do-wells, a bunch of imperfect people, a bunch of rebels to the throne of God, like his disciples and like all of humanity who's ever been born, and somehow, someway, reverse that course and make them eligible, qualified, 
for eternal life in heaven. Now, why is that so great? Why is that so amazing? Well, because sinners, human beings, naturally have no business being in the courts of heaven at all. As a matter of fact, I mean, God makes it very clear throughout his word that he can have no fellowship with anyone that is even stained with the slightest hint of imperfection. Human beings simply are not able to inhabit the holy places. And yet Jesus says, through what I've accomplished, I've made it so. I've made it so sinners can be seen as righteous in heaven. Because, Father, I have lived for them. I have died the death they deserve. I'm going to raise again from death. And that makes me qualified to exchange what I've done with what they've done. I'm taking their sin, Father. I'm absorbing that sin. And in turn, I'm giving them all they need for eternal life. Now, on an abstract level, I think we, we understand this sort of great exchange that takes place, this reversal that takes place. But I think sometimes we, we, we benefit from looking at things that are in our modern world that sort of uh, illustrate this point, this sort of reversal that can take place. Uh, take, for example, a woman named Dorothy Holloway. In 1999, her son Brian was gunned down by a man named James Murphy. And for 15 years, Dorothy harbored the greatest bitterness and a gigantic grudge against James Murphy, and understandably so. This man was an enemy to her loved ones. This man was an enemy to her family. This man was an enemy to her. And yet, as Dorothy says it, the longer that she held on to this grudge, the more she felt locked up in a cloud of darkness. And so eventually, Dorothy, inspired, by the way, by the forgiveness that she had received from Jesus herself, decided that she was going to be done with the, the bitterness from now on. So one day, she wrote a letter to James Murphy and declared to him in that letter that she had decided to forgive him. Murphy, upon receiving the letter, was, of course, uh, aghast and overwhelmed by the grace he had been shown. And so he immediately put pen to paper and wrote her a letter. Dear Mrs. Holloway, thank you so much. And just exploding with, with enthusiasm and thankfulness and gratitude for her grace. Well, in response, she wrote another letter. And then he wrote her another. And this went on for a while until eventually, until eventually Dorothy decided that she wanted to go beyond letter writing she decided that she wanted to meet and talk with James in person. And so every two weeks for the last number of years, Dorothy has driven two hours to the prison where James is still holed up to talk with him, to visit him. And something's interesting happened. Something interesting has happened with the letters that they have sent. Initially, when James would write these letters to Dorothy, he would always begin with, Dear Mrs. Hollowell. But eventually, they started to begin with the words, Dear Mama. What a glorious reversal that has taken place. 
This man who was an enemy to Dorothy has now been transformed into a son for Dorothy. And this woman whom James had injured so severely now sees herself as a mama to him. That's the kind of reversal that Jesus glories in as he thinks about taking this ragtag bunch of sinners, this ragtag group of disciples, and saying, I have made them fit for the Holy of Holies. I've made them fit for eternal life. Glory in that. Will you glorify me for that, Father? And he does the same thing today. He glories in making sinners qualified by his life, death, and resurrection for the, for the courts of heaven. But that's not all Jesus glories in, of course. He also glories in this passage over the fact that he was able to reveal to these disciples, to these sinners, who God really is, God's true identity, if you will. In other words, he was able to give them sight. Listen to verse 6. I have manifested or revealed your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know everything that you have given me is from you. You may have noticed in the passage, Jesus uses sort of two terms, I believe, interchangeably. They're sort of synonymous. He says, I revealed to them your name. I've revealed to them your word. What these words both essentially tell us is that Jesus' goal with his disciples was to reveal to them the true will, the true identity of who God is. Now, again, you might say, well, why is that so phenomenal? Like, why is that worthy of glory? Well, if you do a survey of the entire Bible, Old New Testament, you're going to find that human beings are described by the term blind very often. Spiritually blind to who God actually is. We naturally don't get it. We naturally ascribe things to God that are not true of God. And so Jesus says, part of the reason I came was to reveal to them the truth about who you are. I wanted them to know that their misperceptions about you were not true. And how did I do that? By showing them the way I lived. Jesus gives sight to show people who God really is. It reminds me of those, uh, you know, those viral videos you've seen where you know, a little baby with really bad vision will suddenly be uh, given a pair of glasses. Sometimes they record the moment that the baby has the glasses put around their face or around their eyes. And, and what do you see? The baby looks around with big eyes and, and they're looking at, at their mommy and daddy maybe for the first time, clearly not fuzzy. And, and the world is just exploding with, with brightness and, and a newfound sense of realism that they never had before. Jesus says, I wanted to do that for the disciples when it came to their understanding of you so that everything could change, so that they could see really, truly for the first time. Jesus is saying to the Father and to us, by hearing me, by seeing me, they see you. Now this is a very, very, very important principle that I really can't talk about enough. If you want to know what God is like, look to where God has revealed himself in the person and work of Jesus. Jesus. 
Too often, especially those of us who are kind of into theology and philosophy and, you know, that kind of stuff that we like having the, you know, the deep theological discussions, too often we're prone to looking where God hasn't revealed himself. And, and that leads us into all sorts of philosophical sophistry trying to figure out the hidden ways of God Almighty, the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth. But instead, as, as Luther says, we should look to God as he has shown himself in Jesus. So the principle is to the degree that we look to Jesus, we will actually know who God is more and more, and our worship of him will be more and more accurate. So then if that's the case, we need to ask the question, what do we see in the life of Jesus? Well, there is confrontation with religious legalists that would oppress people. We can extrapolate from that. That's how God is. There is also Jesus longing for these same religious legalists to repent and believe so that they might be forgiven. That's also how God is. There's healing for the needy and vulnerable. That's how God is. There's abundant patience and long-suffering when we fall short. That's how God is. There's fellowship and forgiveness with rank sinners like Zacchaeus. There's restoration for people like Peter that have betrayed him three times in one night. I mean, you name it. We could go on and on with these examples. There's abundant grace shown to people that have no business receiving it. That's how God is. There's the willingness to go so far to reconcile humanity to himself that he's willing to spill his own blood to the point of death in the most excruciating way possible. That's how God is. If you would see God, see him there. That's how God is. But Jesus isn't done pointing out things that he glories in. I mean, he's, here he's like, I'm, I'm glorying because I've reshaped their whole understanding of who you are and the way you work in the world. So bring me glory, Father, because I, I've revealed that to them. But then finally he says, I'm glorying also because, and it sounds simple, almost trite, I'm glorying because these disciples that I've revealed these things to, that I've won eternal life for, actually believe it. They actually received what I had to show them. Listen to verse 8. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Now skip on down to verse 10. What does he say? All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. There's that word again. Why is Jesus glorified in his disciples? Because they believed him. They received what he had to say. You see, it's, it's one thing for Jesus to win eternal life for the world and to reveal who God really is. It's another thing for people to actually receive that as true for themselves. Jesus is glorified in them because they own it. They possess it for themselves. 
I know, it might seem like splitting hairs at first, but it's not. Because it's possible to affirm Jesus did all the things that history says he did. And it's even possible to affirm that Jesus is a great representative of God in the flesh. But it is another thing entirely to say that he's done those things for me. Those two little words make all the difference in the entire universe, all the difference in heaven and earth. Faith cries out, Jesus, one eternal life, not just for the world, for me. Belief cries out, Jesus didn't just reveal God to the world, Jesus reveals God to me, for me. Martin Luther put it this way, true faith says, I certainly believe that the Son of God suffered and arose, but he did this all for me, for my sins. Of that I am certain. For he died for the sins of the whole world, but it is most certain that I am some part of that world. Therefore, it is most certain that he died for my sins. Accordingly, that for me or for us, if it is believed, creates that true faith and distinguishes it from all other faith which merely hears the things done. This is the faith which alone justifies us. Again, to illustrate the difference, just because I want to make this crystal clear, it is one thing to wake up on Christmas morning and acknowledge there are gifts under the tree. It is an entirely different thing, quite another thing, to go to those gifts, take them into your hands, rip the wrapping paper off, and take the gift as your very own. As Jesus concludes his earthly ministry with his closest disciples right next to him, he glories in the fact that they have taken him and all that he has accomplished for themselves. And that is what Jesus glories in today as well. As you hear this word, you don't merely hear this word as some abstract pronouncement, but that you hear it is for you. When you hear the words, you are forgiven, you really hear, I am forgiven. That when you hear the words, Jesus Christ died for you, you say, he died for me. That when you hear the words, Jesus Christ has one eternal life for you, you receive that word just as, as the disciples did. And as you receive that word, all of heaven and earth lifts up the name of Jesus. And Jesus is glorified above all things. For he has one eternal life for you. He has revealed the will and name and identity of God to you. And he looks forward to you receiving it by faith. Father, I ask that you would indeed kindle that constant spark in us to believe those words for you, to know those words are true at all times and in all places, no matter which way we may stray, may we never forget the words for you. And may we in turn do what Jesus requests of the Father, bring glory to his name, and now it is in his name 
that we pray the prayer that he taught us with one voice saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever.